Backs him down. Giannis into the lane. Giannis spinning. Fading shot. Up. Good for Giannis at the buzzer. Bucks win it. Welcome to Locked On Bucks. I'm your host, Kane Pittman, here with the founder of Brewhoop.com and longtime voice of the podcast, Frank Madden. And uh, Frank, we haven't spoke for a few days, but we are going to continue our awards chat from last week. Last week, we spoke about the MVP race. Today, I think we're going to get into the coach of the year, uh, potentially six-man-a-year defensive player of the year. We've got a few of the other awards to get to. And the good thing for us as Bucks fans, people that watch the Bucks, is that the Bucks are almost... You can, you can make an argument in just about all the awards outside of probably Rookie of the Year. So uh, it's always fun to, to go through these debates and see where the guys might fit in. But before we do, I, I don't really want to get into a full chat about The Last Dance because, I first of all, I don't even know if you've seen it. I know we were speaking earlier in the week and you said you were going to watch it a, a bit later on. But the one thing to come away from this that I did put on Twitter and I wanted to get your thoughts about this um, you know, according to Spot Track, I was doing some some contract negotiations, and Tony Kukoc came up on the on the website as having a two million dollar deal with the Bucks right now. And I, I just want to know, what do you think Tony Kukoc can bring to the Bucks at fifty one years old? I don't know. I don't know. In, a, in an era in an era when uh, everyone has to socially distance, and, and maybe Tony's game would translate well. I guess he wouldn't have to, he wouldn't have to defend anybody, but. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I saw, I saw you mention that. I don't know what the story was with that. Um, but it is a reminder that Tony Kukoc, you know, I thought had, um, a nice little spell in Milwaukee. Um, you know, he famously kind of kept living in Chicago and just would drive up, uh, for, for practices and games. And, um, you know, I, I, I always have this memory of, um, I, I was at the Bucks Spurs game, uh, in Bogut's rookie year where, I believe it was in overtime. Um, they ran that play from uh, yeah. the sideline that Tony Kukoc inbounded it. Andrew Bogut caught it and basically in kind of one motion. Um, I don't even know how you describe it. A little like flip shot, basically like almost an alley-oop flip shot, but it was, you know, like a instantaneous little shot from, I don't know, 10 feet out. And um, they won that game. Bogut played really well that game. I mean, that was, that was in many ways um, kind of the peak of that, you know, sort of the, the first year of Andrew Bogut, I would say, was that, that game-winning shot. And, of course, I'm biased because I was at that game. But Kukoc threw the inbound pass. And I think, you know, Tony um, being on that Bucks team, I think, was was pretty cool also for Andrew Bogut, obviously, with the Croatian roots and, um, you know, just generally the kind of what – the style that Tony brought to the court, his unselfishness, you know, the vision – um, just the, the basketball IQ, obviously, um, you know, makes sense that, that he would have enjoyed playing with, with Bogut. So yeah, shout out to, uh, Tony Kukoc getting a little bit, a little bit of run here, uh, with, uh, with the last dance stuff. And, um, I, I, I so I still haven't watched it. Um, it, it's strange. I mean, we were talking about this, you know, like a week or two ago. Uh, I don't know my appetite for consuming kind of like old basketball from the past is, is just weirdly low. Uh, even with no live basketball happening, I don't know. I just can't quite bring myself to to invest in it. Um, and and I was as a kid. I mean, I was born in '81, so 
Um, I remember the Portland Bulls finals was the first finals I ever watched. Um, so I would have been 11, I guess, when, when that happened. Uh, and I, and I like the bull. I mean, you know, as a kid, like Jordan was you know, obviously, you know, an incredible guy to watch and the bucks weren't doing anything at that point. So I would root for the, the bulls in the Eastern conference playoffs. And so, yeah, I mean, I rooted for the bulls in all those playoffs and finals. And, uh, so that was, which was pretty fun, <laughs> pretty fun to root for the <laughs> Chicago bulls in the nineties. Uh, but yeah, for some reason, I don't know, even though I, I rooted for those teams, enjoyed them watched all those games i don't know i haven't quite gotten gotten around to, to watching uh but i guess we'll have a month of uh of once a week uh last dance is dropping so i'll i'm sure i'll get around to it at some point and then actually have something to add to the discussion but um i'm glad everybody's got at least something to uh who, everybody who needs to kind of get their basketball fix at least has something uh, to kind of hopefully tide us over until knock on wood we actually see some version of basketball again yeah, so it's funny you actually mentioned that play from Kukoc, and I, I didn't know that you were actually at that game, but that was one of the the highlights that that Bogut said when he was on the podcast about his time in Milwaukee. The pass from Kukoc and him hitting the buzzer yeah. beater. Obviously, um, back then uh, it, it was a big moment, and it was pretty fun. I remember it, I I didn't watch Kukoc certainly not live playing those Bulls teams, and I remember he, I always really enjoyed him playing for the Bucks. He was fun to watch. Obviously, a beautiful. Um, passer of the ball but uh, yeah that was just funny it is funny to see those ties and there was some ties to Milwaukee in the the first episode of The Last Dance so that was also uh, fun as well but to get to more current day things I think we could start with coach of the year and I don't really know how you went about this in terms of how many candidates you had I, I did put Bud in my top three I suppose and and you know we can we can get into this a little bit I, I think the big thing to note when you look at coach of the year and the bucks right now, as the season finished, we know they had that three game losing streak. So they were actually on 67 win pace, which, <laughs> you know, when you're trying to go for 70, uh, each loss hurts you pretty significantly, particularly the closer you get. So for the bucks to have a three game losing streak, they went from that 70 win pace down to 67 win pace. And that is kind of significant. I think if you were talking about coach of the year, because the important thing to note is there's never been, a back-to-back winner of coach of the year. I was looking at this before and I was, I'm kind of not shocked, I guess, that I saw that, but I figured maybe back in the past there was one back-to-back winner, but there's never been a back-to-back winner. So first of all, that's what Bud has going against him. Uh, He has won coach of the year twice already, both times when he won that, that his teams went 60 and 22, obviously 2018, 19 with the Bucks, and then back with the Hawks a few years ago. Uh, He's one of only six guys to win coach of the year twice. There's only been three to win it three times. Don Nelson significantly twice with the Bucks in the 80s and then the Warriors, Pat Riley with the Lakers, Knicks and Heat, and then Greg Popovich three times with the Spurs. So, I mean, if Bud was to to pick up a third coach of the year uh, award, I mean, he is in absolute elite company. But the thing with coach of the year, to win it two, two years in a row, you really just need to have a, a huge jump. And while... The Bucks, as I said, we're on pace to win 67. I'm not sure whether that would be a, a good enough mark for him to get there. And I look at a recent example with Mike D'Antoni, 55 wins with the Rockets. He won coach of the year in 16-17. The year after, I believe it was, that they won 65 games. And the award actually went to Dwayne Casey, who won 59 with the Toronto Raptors. And uh, that year that D'Antoni actually won it, Eric Spolstra, who remarkably did not win Coach of the Year any of the years that he won the title and any of those years that he had LeBron Wade and Chris Bosh won it. 
in 16-17 also with a 41-41 and 41 record. So Coach of the Year is based on a bunch of different things. As good as Bud's been, the fact that he won it last year, for me, there's really little chance that he would be able to pull off this win, particularly when you consider the fact they weren't going to get to that 70-win mark. Yeah, and I mean, I you know, I'm obviously someone who likes to have a, um, you know, statistical basis for making my award decisions. With coaches, it's always harder just because obviously yeah. there's not uh, individual stats for coaches the way uh, there are for players. Um, obviously, the team is the reflection of, of the coaching job. But, but yeah, I mean, I think the what you referenced there about guys not winning twice in a row, um, that just sort of speaks to how much the coach of the year award rightly or wrongly is, is just sort of an expectations uh, based award. And if you dramatically exceed expectations, um, those are the people that tend to win. And it's also just a kind of a novelty based award. So, you know, like even if you do an amazing job two years in a row, like a Dan Tony, who obviously, you know, nobody, nobody was like saying all oh, the word, the Rockets are going to win 65 games that second year. Yeah. They still obviously overachieve. The Bucks obviously, I would say, overachieved most everyone's, um, you know, preseason, you know, expert expectations. Um, but it's just hard to to win it twice in a row, right? Uh, and so, and I think the other the other most important dimension here, which I think leads us to, and I, you haven't told me who you picked. I think it's probably I, I'm very confident I know who who you picked because uh, because I also picked. Um, the uh, guitar playing second year coach <laughs> savant of the Toronto Raptors, Nick Nurse. Um, there's also the added dynamic of we're coming into this season knowing that Nick Nurse won the championship last year. Uh, and in particular, obviously, uh, his team beat the Bucks. And, you know, I think pretty much everyone would say, well, he outcoached Bud in that series. Um, and again, not to say that, you know, Bud got it handed to him necessarily. Um, I think he made, tried to make adjustments in ways that, that maybe the old version or the assumed version of Bud would not, but um, you know, kudos to Nick Nurse. Uh, he was an incredible job as as a first year head coach. Um, I think you know certainly it's it's interesting to me, and, and I, I don't, I'm not saying this to like try to tear down the Raptors or anything, but it's interesting to me there hasn't been sort and, and maybe I'm just oblivious to it, but um, you know, lots of luck in terms of um, opponent injuries obviously went into them ultimately winning the finals with hmm. the Warriors losing. Uh, both Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson, obviously, but um, you know that, that happens, right? Um, it, it'll be interesting to see if if we do get a season this year in some compromised form. It'll be really interesting because I think that any championship won this year, I'd say, will be scrutinized and set aside in, in different ways than, than any other championship ever, no matter what the playoffs might look like. Um, and you know, it'll be interesting having it come a year after the Warriors, uh, you know, were by far the favorites coming into the year. And I think would have been the favorites, obviously if KD and, and clay had been healthy in the finals, but you know, shit happens. And, and obviously give credit to the Raptors. They, they obviously took advantage and, and won the championship and there, no one's going to take the banner down, right? No one's going to put an, an asterisk on the banner kudos to them. But, um, but yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm fine with kind of the combination of look, he deserves a ton of credit for the championship, which, you know, obviously doesn't get factored into the coach of the year voting from last year. Uh, officially, it, I guess, technically shouldn't be factored in this year either. But um, the job he did, I think, with the Raptors this year was also tremendous. And, and even if you take away um, the title last year and, and give him a bump there, even if you kind of take that away, I think there's a really compelling case for, for what the job he's done 
you know, in just the fact that, you know, they lose their finals MVP, they lose, uh, you know, a top five and, and, you know, overall player in the league in Kawhi Leonard, and they really don't miss a beat, right, in terms of wins and losses. I mean, they, they've been terrific this year. And again, you know, are they a team that people are expecting to win it, you know, will be right there for a championship? Maybe not, right? I think people, everyone would admit their, their ultimate ceiling is lower, but I think that also um, helps his case, right, as coach of the year, because again, relative to expectations, um, the level they've been at all year, the competitiveness, um, the creativity, you know, everybody loves to um, uh, romanticize, you know, Nick Nurse throwing out these random defenses and presses and boxing ones and all this other stuff, right? Um, they're sort of the yin to the yang of, of the Bucks, right, who are very yeah. regimented and, and set in kind of the way that they do it. So uh, an interesting, I'd say an interesting uh, comparison between those two coaches on multiple levels. Um, but I think, again, just, you know, and, and it's not to take anything away from Bud, um, but, you know, he, I think he, Bud is, is deserving of coach of the year in, in pretty much any year with the job he did, did this year, elevating the Bucks, you know, to literally historic levels in terms of point differential, defense, all that. Um, but I think this year, again, just relative to expectations, as much as the Bucks have exceeded expectations, the Raptors have, I'd say, done it even more. And so, yeah, you know, hey. Uh, we, we can at least claim we're not total homers, right? Because we're picking uh, uh, someone from from another team to uh, to win an award. Well, first of all, you're assuming that I I picked Ignace. Um, now you are correct. That's true. I just spent you the last pick- five minutes assuming <laughs> assuming your your pick. I thought you were going to say uh, that I assumed that that, that that you picked Bud second because I didn't mention Frank Vogel. He's probably the the yeah. third guy in 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 the discussion, but I haven't talked about him yet. But yeah, go ahead. Confirm for me that yes, you did actually pick Nick Nurse. Yes, I did. I picked Nick Nurse, and uh, the, but I, you know, I, I looked through Basketball Reference just to look at the the games missed because, you know, I mean, we we praised the Bucks a lot this year for their ability to overcome losing Eric Bledsoe for a stretch, losing Chris Middleton for a stretch, and you know, we were in the middle of of potentially seeing what they were going to do with missing Giannis for uh, what was about to be if they played that game against Boston the the longest missed game streak in his career he never missed three games in a row so the Bucks were about to really enter uncharted territory and you talk about the loss of Kawhi but it felt like every single day every single week someone else was going down for the Raptors and when you when you look through it uh, in addition to losing Leonard as we've already said Marcus Gasol missed 28 games Van Fleet missed 16 games Pascal Siakam missed 11 Lowry missed 12 uh Norman Powell missed 20 and Serge Ibaka missed 14 games I mean that is is a lot of quality guys that, that have missed. And this has been the beauty of the Raptors. And in a way, I believe this is why I think that it was hard to take them seriously as a team that was going to, to make a championship push again, because they're a really even team. They're a team that is going to be able to um, extend the rotation, go deep in that rotation and win a bunch of games against inferior opponents. As we, as we stand they're 46 and 18. So a long way back of the bucks for first in the East. But having said that their ability to withstand all those injuries and still have that record and still win games. And I think a lot of that comes down to the creativity of Nick Nurse and his ability to try different things and get the best out of guys that haven't played a lot uh, elsewhere. And Hollis Jefferson, for instance, a guy like him, Ananobi is a guy that obviously they've had for a while, but he's really taken another step. Uh, Boucher, I mean, Matt Thomas, a guy that comes in and just bangs threes. Are you going to rely on those guys in the playoffs? Probably not, but uh, certainly through the regular season, he's done a fantastic job of keeping this group together. And 
uh, winning a bunch of games through a lot of adversity through injury. So I, I did have Nick Nurse, and I, I think that you know, for all the reasons that you outlined what happened last year and the fact that they did win the title, I think that he was going to get the reward for that by getting Coach of the Year. And listen, we'll, we'll put aside his complete failure of a coaching performance for the can- Canadian national team, but you know, we, we, can, we can get to that an, another time. But hey, the other guy, and you can say this is a bit of a homer pick, I'm totally fine with that, but the other guy I wanted to mention out in Memphis, uh, old uh, friend of the Bucks, Taylor Jenkins, has done a fantastic job with the Grizzlies last year, they only win 33 games. There was a lot of stuff going on, obviously. You know, speaking of Marcus Gasol, he gets traded uh, to the Raptors at the deadline. They lose Mike Conley over the offseason, who goes to the Utah Jazz. Uh, they've done a fantastic job, 32 and 33 right now, so below 500. But one win off that total last year. As a rookie head coach, he's got guys like Ja Morant, Jaron Jackson Jr., Dylan Brooks, Brandon Clark, all these young guys leading the show. Uh, they've been highly entertaining. And they've won a bunch of games that uh, I think, you know, to this point have already exceeded expectations. And if there's no other regular season and we just dive straight into the playoffs, we don't know what's going to happen. They'll be in there. And I don't think anyone would have predicted that the Grizzlies would be in the playoffs. So I'm going to give a shout out to, uh, to our guy, Taylor Jenkins. Yeah, and for whatever reason, I mean, the... The Coach of the Year award has – I mean, there have been guys who have won Coach of the Year. I mean, Doc Rivers comes to mind. I think he was 500 in Orlando when he won his, his first Coach of the Year award. Um, it, it has happened before that, that coaches have won Coach of the Year with, um, you know, records, you know, more in that, like, 500-ish realm. Um, we haven't seen that certainly much of late. Uh, and, and I think that that's, that's probably good. Um, you know, I think that you have to reach, I think, some baseline of, of high level performance with a team, I think to, to be coach of the year as, as much as I think a guy like Taylor Jenkins deserves a ton of credit though. Cause you know what you're saying, a team that young, um, a team that, you know, beginning of the year, Andre Godala basically was like, nah, I'm good. Don't really want to play with you guys. Right. Which yeah, I thought was right. an interesting sort of motivating fat thing that, that seemed to galvanize some of the young guys that, you know, Hey, these guys don't want to play with us. Okay. Screw them. You know? Um, but but yeah, I, I think he's done a tremendous job, uh, and and very cool to see, you know, Bud's coaching tree uh, grow a uh, I don't know a flower in Taylor Jenkins. Am I, am I doing the metaphor right? I don't know. Um, but yeah, he he certainly has um, repaid the faith that the Grizzlies put in him. When uh, I I don't think many people th- saw that hire coming, right? And I don't think I expected Taylor Jenkins to to get that job. You know, I think we always were like, oh, Darvin Ham's the, the lead assistant. You know, he's he's the next in line. For, something like that so um but yeah tremendous job by taylor jenkins and um i think more more for me just sort of an artifact of um you know sort of and and again i'm not saying it's like necessarily right that that uh, guys who are elevating kind of bad slash young teams to being pretty good um that they tend to to not get rewarded um but I, i think it's a reasonable um you know sort of uh mindset to have when thinking about this um and yeah, I mean, I think Frank Vogel kind of jumps out as well and kind of, you know, it's sort of those things. I, I don't know if like tactically, like I think Nurse and Budenholzer are, I think are really um, interesting and, and um, great coaches because they do, because well, of how they succeed tactically in very different ways, right? Um, Vogel, I think is kind of less interesting in a lot of ways. Like it's not like there's anything... Um, I'd say particularly compelling about what they do tactically. I mean, I think the 
the most obvious thing that the Lakers did this year was they just played very big, right? <laughs> Which yeah. I think partly because Anthony Davis was like, eh, I don't really want to play center. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, that, that team obviously um, was, was great this year. To be honest, I, I don't know. Like, I, I mean, I, I was, it struck me as a bit surprising that, you know, people thought the Lakers wouldn't be like, like really good. Like, I mean, there were smart people who I think expected the Lakers to not be, you know, not win 50 games, not be a team that maybe never would have half home court in, in the playoffs in the West. And, and I don't know, it's, it's kind of, maybe I'm just kind of biased looking back on it, but um, you know, even last summer, it's like, dude, you got LeBron and Anthony Davis. Like, you, know, like you, <laughs> you don't need that much around those guys uh, to be, to be an awesome team. We've seen LeBron um, carry worse teams to, uh, you know, further than, uh, than what kind of people were expecting of that team, but um, it's a it's a bit weird. It's almost like Vogel, like you know, his candidacy is based largely on just sort of the degree of difficulty coming into that situation. The fact that you know Teron Lewis seemed to be the front runner and basically walked away from the job because of um, some maybe posturing by the Lakers. You know, he comes in with Jason Kidd looking over his shoulder. You've got LeBron, and obviously uh, his reputation precedes him. Maybe not always the easiest co- the easiest player to coach um let's be honest and obviously just the the spotlight in LA is is really bright so um a lot of credit to to Frank Vogel I, I believe I coined the phrase Vogel levers um years ago <laughs> when Eric and I discussed you know how we 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 both thought hey Frank Vogel's a pretty good coach like it seemed like he got screwed in in Indiana in Indiana when he got fired there um and you know Nick McMillan's done, I'd say, a very nice job uh, overall in Indiana. And Vogel kind of had his his lost period there after leaving Indiana, but um, certainly a lot of credit for reinventing himself and resuscitating his career uh, in LA. Because if this didn't work, I mean, is Frank Vogel ever going to be a head coach again? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how many more shots he would have got, but uh, credit to him. Um, any, anything else coaching wise that, that you wanted to bring up, or should we? Um, should we go to defensive player of the year, which to me is, is kind of a more fun one just because we get to talk about a uh, certain Greek guy who plays for the Bucks. <laughs> so there is one last thing I want to throw in with this. And you spoke about uh, yeah, records and said sometimes there has been precedent for coaches to win with poor records. But I was trying to, to look up earlier in, in trying to make a case for Mike Budenholzer. I, I wondered to myself, how many coaches of teams that have won 67 plus games have actually won coach of the year? And during that search, I came across one of the, the best stats uh, I think I've found, the most ridiculous stats I've found. So back in the 1967 season, it was coach of the Philadelphia 76ers, Alex Hannum, I believe that's how it's pronounced. I'm not 100% sure. Coached the Sixers to a 68 win season. Uh, he did not win coach of the year. Coach of the year that year was Johnny Kerr of the Chicago Bulls, who led Chicago to a fantastic 33 and 48 campaign. <laughs> so, uh, un- unfortunately for Hannum, he won 35 more games than Johnny Kerr's Bulls, but it did not matter. Johnny Kerr, Coach of the Year forever, is in the history books. And I-, I think the interesting point you make about Vogel in terms of Coach of the Year credentials, it is interesting. Like, as I already mentioned, you know, Spolstra with all those teams with Miami ends up winning coach of the year when he hit with a 41 and 41 record, never won it with LeBron and all those great teams. Sometimes 
uh, that that talent and having those those guys, as you sort of said, boosts the expectations. So then when you win games, people are like, yeah, well, what else are you going to do? You got LeBron, you got Anthony Davis, but maybe yeah. the Lakers are in a different situation, as you said, because there was uh, plenty of doubters around that. But for now, for today, uh, Frank, we are going to leave it here. I know me and you are going to continue our conversation here, but the rest of this discussion, particularly the Defensive Player of the Year, Sixth Man of the Year, Rookie of the Year, that's all going to be on Friday's pod. Frank, thank you for jumping on with me today. It's always great to have you back. Uh, To end this episode, I'm going to wrap this up here, and then if you want to keep listening, we are going to have a little preview of the Rejecting the Screen podcast, a fantastic podcast with... Noah Kozlov and Adam Stanko, they have a bunch of uh, brilliant guests on their show and some great discussions. You'll have a little bit of a preview of some of the best parts from their show since the NBA has gone on hiatus. Make sure to check that out. But for now, Frank, once again, appreciate you coming on. For Frank Madden and myself, Kane Pippen, we'll be back tomorrow. Hey, it's Noah Kozlov from Rejecting the Screen on the Locked On Podcast Network. Adam Stanko and I get together twice a week to talk hoops with folks who have touched the NBA on all sorts of levels, from all-stars, coaches, executives, and media members. Recently, the number three pick in the 2006 NBA draft, Adam Morrison, joined us to tell a story about how Kobe Bryant, his former Lakers teammate with whom he won two rings, went above and beyond to lift his spirits. It was a year after I was out, and so I wasn't playing, obviously, and I was really depressed and I was basically a hermit in my own house and I was, didn't go out in the community at all and then you know if you did it was one of people asking you why aren't you playing and I was you know I'm 26 at the time or whatever I was and you know number three pick and just really low point in my life and I get a text from Robert Laura the, the Lakers security and it was Kobe's like one of his best friends and he said hey what's your address uh, I got something in the mail for you and and I get the package, and it's um, an autographed jersey from Didier Drogba, um, who is my favorite player. I'm a Chelsea fan. You know, it's from Kobe. And game-worn jersey, you know, signed Didier Drogba, to Adam, best wishes. And I always thought Kobe, you know, made a phone call, which is, would be fine. It's still cool as shit. It's unbelievable. The night he passed, I'm scrolling through, reading everything, and I'm emotional. And on Chelsea's, you know, Instagram page, it's him with Didier Drogba holding up a jersey, and it says "To Adam, best wishes." So he went up to my favorite player, got it signed for me without me even asking, and sent it to me when he knew I was was low. That's that's what Kobe Bryant was, man. He was just one of those dudes who understood his own aura. When four-time All-Star Sean Marion hung out with us, not only did he tell us that he tried to recruit Kobe Bryant to the Suns the summer that the Suns ended up signing Steve Nash and Quentin Richardson, he also told us that his 2006 Suns team should have won the title. In the 2011 preseason, his Mavericks teammate Jason Terry was so confident they'd win it all, he got a tattoo of the trophy. We was at the Sean Stevenson house. We had a game in Orlando, and... um... We went to his house and you know, a, few, a few of the team and uh, we was over having bar eating and stuff. And then this tattoo guy came over there and Jet guy tattooed a tra- trophy on his on his bicep. I was like, damn, dude. I was like, for real? I was like, okay, okay. 
I'm loving it. I'm loving the the, the confidence and the swag we have right now. So like, just let alone don't nobody else know. Don't nobody else in the world know we do we doing this and we feeling this right now because everybody everybody in the league has aspirations. A lot of teams have aspirations to win championships, but it ain't but maybe a handful that actually actually can do it. You know what I'm saying? So we was one of those teams and. Like we're sitting there going through this process and looking at this, and uh, yeah, we was like, yeah. Did he tell you, hey, I'm gonna get a tattoo of the trophy? Did you know as it was happening, or once he got it, he showed you, hey, he's got a tattoo of the trophy? Well, it, it was called, it was all kind of one sequence. We been, he's like, we won the championship this year. I'm about to get a trophy right now. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we were like, okay, that's what's up. <laughs> I mean. You don't get no better than that. Come on now. You don't get no better yeah, than that. Yeah, it does it. Does you don't it. get no better than that. Kevin Willis never did win a ring, but he was an all-star and was one of the most dominant rebounders of his era. He spent year 16 of his career with the Toronto Raptors when Tracy McGrady was in year two and Vince Carter was a rookie. As expected, he had some pretty good advice for those kids. They used to call me OG, old head, things like that. <laughs> And I was, I think I was in my 15th year or somewhere up in there. And it was like, yeah, man, I used to tell him and T-Mac. I say, T-Mac, first of all, you need to, you need to stop falling asleep on the bench and practice. You, you got to stay awake. You, you, you keep falling asleep. I used to tell him and Vince, you guys rather hope that you get the 15 years because you, you little snot-nosed rookies. But, you know, they, they, were, they were great, great rookies. Great talent. Speaking of vets and rookies, when Suns legend Eddie Johnson got traded to Seattle, Gary Payton was a rookie point guard. And since everyone loves a good one about GP running his mouth, Eddie delivered. And I remember one day at practice, I was there for about two weeks. And I remember he kept disrupting practice. And Gary's a smart guy. He had, he had a right to talk in that regard because I got to know him. He really knows the game, obviously. The Hall of Famer. He's one of the greatest defenders ever. Now, but at the time, he was a rookie. And rookies were not supposed to talk under my watch. Right. So that's, that's what it was for me. And I just couldn't get over the fact that this rookie kept talking. You know, and I let it go for two weeks. And I asked Nate McMillan, I said, is it a point in time, man, when you all, like, going to say something to him? And Nate was like, man, you know. <laughs> You know, Nate kind of shook it off. And I said, well, I'm going to say something. And lo and behold, one practice, he's got the yapping and, you know, coaches going over stuff and he yapping and he yapping. And I just finally said, would you shut the F up? About 15 years later in Seattle, P.J. Carlesimo was coaching the Sonics with rookie Kevin Durant. When P.J. came on the show, he revealed how ahead of the curve his staff was when KD was on the floor. One good thing we really did with him was we exposed him to a lot of things in terms of we played him at two, we played him at three, we played him at four, we put him in pick and rolls, we encouraged him to shoot threes. It's his only bad three-point percentage. If you look at his percentage year by year uh, in the NBA, it's far and away the lowest one. But again, uh, in those days, it was even a bigger jump from college three to NBA three. And Kevin didn't shoot a lot of threes uh, at Texas. And we, we had him do that. And at times we were criticized, like, why are they playing this guy at guard? Why, like, why are they putting him in pick and rolls? You know, why are they letting him dribble the ball up the court? Because he could. Staying with coaches, Brendan Haywood won a title with the Mavs in 2011. And when he joined LeBron in the Cavs under David Blatt, it was obvious when a head coaching change was needed. 
we could see late in ball games if he had to draw up plays. We could see he was super nervous. His hands would be shaking. He'd have to give the clipboard to Larry Drew. Larry Drew would draw the plays up. And when you see that, you understand. Like, this dude ain't ready. He's not ready for this. He's not ready for this. And it's not his fault because he he thought he was taking on a rebuilding project. And then next thing you know, LeBron James calls up David Blatt and says, I'm coming. And now instead of taking on a rebuilding project with Kyrie and Deion Waiters at the forefront of it and Tristan Thompson, you have LeBron James and Kevin Love there. And now you're competing for a title. Uh, I just don't – I think just – Coach Black got hit with too much too soon, but it was easy to tell right away that Coach Black was probably in over his head. Just like a head coach can lose a team, a woman can tear one apart as well. Butch Beard was an assistant with the Mavericks in the mid-90s as Grammy Award-winning R&B singer Tony Braxton came in between stars Jason Kidd and Jimmy Jackson. I mean, it was it, it ended up being Jason and Jimmy, all right? Jason, Tony. Tony's not caring about either one of them. And then the team was taking sides. So I'll never forget, we had, we, we, we had a damn team meeting. And I said, guys, it's a woman that's breaking us apart. And if, if the woman is that good, please, I want to see what her mother looks like. Because I want to <laughs> date her mother. Come on. Entertainment and the NBA will always be intertwined. The first to do that on the media side was the New York Post's Peter Vesey, who was also the sideline reporter for the national broadcasts on NBC. We asked Peter about his post-game interview with Carl Malone after the Jazz lost in the finals to the Bulls in 1997. The YouTube clip is titled, Peter Vesey Tries to Get Punched. Carl was always a great interview. He would never not answer a question you know we really didn't get along i i disliked him on many levels respected him on many other levels as a player but you know he was a dirty player and the first time that they showed it to me i didn't even remember it okay so i did this interview i had no agenda i was just going to ask him some tough questions and um i didn't care how tough because i really didn't like him so (laughs) But I knew he was going to answer them. <laughs> so so I, I wasn't, I didn't feel unsafe and I didn't feel like I was doing something wrong. And it really never, it never dawned on me that that came off the way it did. You know, my son would say to me, I said, wow, like, what, were you, what were you thinking? I said, I was just doing my job. But I, I, uh, I had no mindset going in other than I knew he was going to answer my question. In 1997, former head coach Hubie Brown was broadcasting for TNT. But five years later was hired by Jerry West mid-season to coach the Memphis Grizzlies. Point guard Earl Watson was in his second year with the team and was thoroughly confused when it all went down. Jerry West introduced UB. I'm 22 years old. We're in Memphis, losing franchise. First time in my life I've ever been a part of anything that was losing. So it's all new to me. Just Everything was like new to me. I never, I, it made me, it almost made me sick. He introduces UB Brown and I'm thinking, I got to call Bob because we just hired the TNT guy. This is crazy. <laughs> I didn't know his full resume, right? <laughs> so the first thing he says to us, he takes the podium and he says, first, I would like to say, you all are fucking losers. <laughs> None of you are winners. 
if you was a winner, the other guy wouldn't be packing his stuff with his family. See, you got on fire. You're fucking losers. I'm going to teach you how to be a winner. I'm going to teach you how to be a winner. The Bob that Earl referred to was Bob Myers, his agent at the time and now the president of the Golden State Warriors. Stories like these are a taste of what rejecting the screen sounds like every week. So we hope you'll join us by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, or download and listen wherever you get your podcasts.